Many of the neighborhoods in New York City's five boroughs have a rich and storied history. Parkchester in the Eastern Bronx is among them. Hi, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. Parkchester was built as a planned community. It opened in 1940 and was celebrated as a city within a city. But the neighborhood's early history involved the exclusion of African-Americans and Latinos. It was a whites-only development until the late 1960s. Author Jeffrey Gurok takes readers through the history of Parkchester in his new book, Parkchester, A Bronx Tale of Race and Ethnicity. He's with me now in the studio. Jeffrey, thanks so much for coming in. My pleasure. So for those not familiar with Parkchester, describe this community in the East Bronx. Well, first of all, it was a planned community established in 1940 by Metropolitan Life Insurance Corporation. Their idea was to build a diversified ethnic community, inviting in uh, Italian-Americans, predominantly Irish-Americans, substantial number of Jews, and uh, a small white Protestant community. But significantly, for the f- almost the first 30 years of Parkchester's existence, it was off-limits to African-Americans and Latinos. And they were pretty unforgiving about that, am I right? They were very arrogant. They, they never officially admitted that they didn't let African-Americans and Latinos in. But uh, we know from the records of Metropolitan Life Insurance Corporation that they did their utmost to keep minorities out. I should tell you that uh, Metropolitan Life Insurance Corporation has an archive, and I work there at the archive, and there are memoranda in the archive on what to do when a minority family applies to get into Parkchester. And what did they do? Well, Mr. Brown, you're on the waiting list, and you'll get off the waiting list, but you never get off the waiting list. Uh, that was one of the the subterfuges. But to go back in time, uh, I tell my students that until 1954, until Brown versus Board of Education in Topeka, Kansas, segregation is the law of the land, both down south. We often talk about segregation, Ku Klux Klan in Mississippi, but our beloved city of New York was also very segregated. And in the 1950s, the General Council of Metropolitan Life wrote a law article, University of Chicago Law Journal, and this is not Mississippi Law Journal. It's University of Chicago, very prestigious journal, on, on how he kept out African Americans because from a fiduciary point of view, he felt that would, uh, that would lower the prestige and the, uh, the panache of this neighborhood. How surprised are your students to learn this fact? Very surprised, very surprised. You know, uh, they think that segregation was down south, but segregation was also up north in our neighborhood. And, you know, uh, I reveal at the end of the book that I grew up in Parkchester. I lived there for 25 years, from 1949 to 1974. And growing up there, and uh, it never dawned upon me that the minority kids lived literally across the tracks, the subway tracks, and never tell a Parkchester person that they lived in a project. We lived in a private development. Projects, and to this day, there are issues in public housing, right, were for them, not for us. So uh, you never had a sense of African-Americans living in the neighborhood. In fact, one of the problems in doing this book, I wouldn't say problems, one of the challenges in doing this book is I have my own history. I'm a primary source. I have my impressions of what my life was like growing up there. So to validate everything that I tried to say, I interviewed scores of people my age and older, 
And on the question of race, almost uniformly, people said, yeah, there were no, there were no blacks in the neighborhood, but it really didn't dawn upon us. We lived in a very comfortable setting. Why do you think it is that you did not recognize how segregated this community was while you were growing up? I, I think we were very comfortable where very comfortable where we are. When I think of issues of race, I think there are three categories of how white folk deal with race. There are those who are very aggressive in uh, supporting segregation. There are those who are very aggressive activists for integration. And then there's a middle group, Jew and Gentile, who are very comfortable where they live with the life. And they know there are problems elsewhere, but it's not impacting upon our lives in our community. Um, I have a story in the book of a speech that was given at the Orthodox synagogue in the 60s by a Jewish activist. He ended up, his name is Michael Horowitz. And he, ha he ended up teaching the first integrated class at the University of Mississippi. And he talks to the community about, um, well, Parkchess is now opening up. How do you feel about it? And, the, and he told me retrospectively that the people in the audience weren't racist. They were just very comfortable where they were with their lives. And similar stories obtained at St. Raymond's Church, where a pastor got up and said, we have to be proactive in terms of integration. And one of the congregants uh, wrote him a note, said to him, well, if you like blacks so much or you like Latinos so much, maybe you should go to Venezuela, hmm. which he does. And hmm. then he comes back. So that was the tenor of life. And I, I want to say one other thing. During the civil rights movement, we talk about demonstrations and protests. They never took place in the streets of Parkchester, where the NAACP and the Urban League protested was downtown at the offices of Metropolitan Life Insurance Corporation. So you didn't have this type of street conflict which would raise the ire or apprehensions of neighbors. So we lived, shall I say, a lily-white existence, not on a plantation, but up in the bucolic East Bronx in an area which until 1940 was an open area. It was owned by the Catholic Church. and They built the buildings, 151 buildings, in almost two years which is amazing in terms of how quickly, and this also overlapped the beginning of our involvement in World War II. So that was pretty remarkable, and people felt very happy that they got into Parkchester. The residents of Parkchester were very active during World War II, in particular the women of Parkchester. Right, very much so. So for me, as someone who's interested primarily in the Jewish experience, I should say this is my, I've written and edited, this is my 21st book, Almost all of my work until now has been about Jewish life in New York and elsewhere. This is the first book where Jews are not the centerpiece. We're part of the larger story. But uh, when Jews think about World War II, they think of the Holocaust. But ironically, for Jews in America, World War II is a great time because we're allowed to get involved in the war effort on the home front. There was the United Victory Committee made up of Jews and Gentiles who were very active. There were um, air raid wardens. There actually was in Parkchester a labyrinth underneath the buildings in case of an air raid. Now, it's interesting. I looked at the records, the architectural records, and there's no indication of those, that labyrinth, but it's there. Huh. It's there. 
Okay, so Jews were accepted. They were involved. They were thrilled when the Knights of Columbus and Temple Emmanuel marched together uh, and raised money. We have pictures in the book of of uh, people collecting uh, cans and bottles for the war effort. It was a time which I think, in terms of people getting along, brought people together. And if I may tell just one other quick story, there's one incident that's recorded in the book where a woman named Minnie Levine, very Jewish-sounding name, who was brought to trial for price gouging, which was a major issue during World War II, and the head or the representative of the United Victory Committee was a Lorraine Helfand, also a very Jewish-sounding name, and she's there to testify against the malefactor. So that tells you a lot about the spirit of uh, Parkchester during World War II. How did the houses of worship develop around Parkchester when it opened in 1940? Well, you used the right word. It's around Parkchester. There was what became known as Interfaith Road, row in Parkchester. Uh, Parkchester did not allow, it's a very controlling community, did not allow either houses of worship or public schools or parochial schools within the heart of Parkchester. What was the reasoning for that? I think there was a racial determination here, too. They didn't want what they called the wrong element going to school or going to the churches. So one of the major streets was Benedict Avenue. And on that street, you had Temple Emmanuel. Across the street, you had the uh, Parkchester Presbyterian Church. Across the street from there, there was a nunnery, which is today a mosque. And down the block, there was and is um, St. Helena's Church, which was built in 1940 uh, to compete, interesting, compete against St. Raymond's Church, which was the long-established church in the area before Park just came into existence. Now, the St. Raymond's folks were not so happy with that competition, right? Mm-hmm. But they were smart, the St. Helena's people. Cardinal Spellman, his mother was named Helena, so they named it after St. Helena, but According to St. Helena's law, L-O-R-E, the existence of Temple Emmanuel had to do with the fact that a great priest became a monsignor. There's a high school named after him, Father Scanlon, bought the property from an anti-Semite who wouldn't sell to Jews, and he sold it to Temple Emmanuel, and they built that. So you had uh, interfaith row. Today it's interfaith with mosques and churches. And the synagogue I belong to on Virginia Avenue, also outside of Parkchester, you had a Lutheran church up the block and the young Israel Parkchester down the block. So you had that sense. And there's a degree of conviviality among the liberal Jews, religiously liberal Jews and the Catholics, not so much with the Orthodox Jews. You know, Irish politicians often spoke at the synagogue, but priests were not invited in. When you were growing up, there was a lot of tension in New York City between Irish Catholics and the Jewish population, correct? That is something that you did not experience, though, growing up in Parkchester, am I right? Well, in the history of Irish-Jewish relations, until the end of World War II, the long history of conflict over jobs and housing and uh, politics— About a decade ago, I was asked to speak at the Irish consulate in New York about Irish-Jewish relations, and I was told, you know, can you say something 
positive about how the Jews and Irish got along. And I found something, that between 1945 and 1948, William O. Dwyer was involved with the Irgun, that was the Jewish resistance force in Palestine, helping them smuggle guns to Palestine to fight against the, the Arabs. What did they have in common? They both hated the British, this Irish group. But in Parkchester, I'm suggesting uh, that there is a get-along attitude. Not that the Irish and the Jews were great friends, but they stopped being enemies, which is a big turn. And this was validated for me by a man who I've met who's now become a colleague, Peter Quinn, who was a speechwriter for Governor Mario Cuomo and has written memoirs about being an Irish boy in Parkchester. And he said, we lived separately together. We didn't date Jewish girls. We weren't close friends, but he uses a very important phrase. There were no Irish pogromists roaming around the neighborhood attacking the Jewish kids. So when you talk to Jewish people, they say, yeah, they've had some nasty incidences here and there, but it wasn't something that was a great fear for us growing up during the during this time period. And I think, to Jew, use a Jewish expression, that the residents of Parkchester felt they were chosen people. Hmm. They were able to get in. If you wanted to get into Parkchester, if you were white in 1940s and beyond, a social worker, of course, Metropolitan Life Insurance Corporation denied that this happened, but it's true. A social worker would come to your home. Your existing home. Existing home, Mm -hmm. let's say on St. Lawrence Avenue or Elder Avenue, white gloves to see what sort of life you lived. And I interviewed a Monsignor John Graham, who's now in Throg's Neck, and he said his family was turned down for some reason. His dad was a um, subway conductor. So when he became a priest at St. Raymond's Church, he would open all of his speeches to community groups. Well, I finally made it to Parkchester. Mm -hmm. So this sense of chosenness helped. The sense that after World War II, the economics of New York for white people is improving. So the sense of competition. A third factor was that... um, Unlike an Irish perception that Jews were taking over the neighborhood, we are both moving into the same time. The New York Times talks about the, the names of people who are coming into Parkchester. It, any New Yorker could identify these names, and it, it's an it's a, uh, important point. And finally, we don't say enough about the significance of Vatican II. Kids growing up after 1962 in these Catholic schools are being taught a different curriculum about Jews. Now, I got to tell you, George, I don't know. I can't tease out what's set across living room tables or lunch tables, but it's a much more harmonious neighborhood, even though we live separately together. Air conditioning wasn't a thing for Parkchester residents in its early days, and residents would keep their doors open to get more air in their apartments. Now, did that create tension or this greater sense of community that you're talking about? So everything that I write about, I had to confirm with other voices. And an elderly Jewish woman who lived there, and she just passed away, did a a show on New York One, and she said, we open our doors and windows... And we became friends. And then you read memoirs and so many people say the same thing. 
It creates a sense of uh, conviviality. And if you weren't doing that, you went out to the beautiful Metropolitan Oval and you sat out there until all hours of the night. Or you went to Lowy's American and you sat through a double feature. A fellow told me last night that his father took them to see the Ten Commandments that, that uh, Cecil D. B. DeMille film runs four and a half hours. They sat through it two times, 10 <laughs> hours, because they were in air-conditioned uh, theater. Sure. Or they hung out in Macy's. And one of the things that I investigated was, you know, my dad grew up in a tenement in Harlem. When he was a kid, he spent his nights, hot nights, sleeping on a fire escape, or he slept in Central Park. So for him, moving to Parkchester wasn't so bad. But for us as kids, oh, goodness, right? So... This isn't in the book, but I'm not afraid to tell my audience. When I got married uh, in 1974, I had a fellowship uh, in Cincinnati two months later. My wife, my bride, we moved into Park. Just my parents were away for the summer. And the first night we're there, she lived in an air-conditioned apartment. She says, how in the world do you live here? You know? <laughs> yeah. It was not so hot. We got out of Park just very quickly. But air conditioning, you know, as an urban historian, I studied the history of air conditioning in New York City, you know, I have colleagues who study all these arcane, esoteric topics like St. Thomas Aquinas or Maimonides. So, Gurak, what are you studying? I'm studying air conditioning. <laughs> but it's very important. You know why? Because I'm trying to tease out how people live their lives, you know. And, and people sometimes talk about today in an air-conditioned environment, you go from your air-conditioned car to your air-conditioned home, and you never interact with your neighbors. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't want to give your listeners a sense that everything is wonderful there, but it, it you have a sense of people getting along as opposed to anger, as a, uh, opposed to confrontations. Are there bullies? Of course they are bullies. You mentioned Macy's. Now, I didn't grow up in Parkchester, but I am a Bronx native, and my grandmother would frequently take me on the bus to go to Macy's in Parkchester. This was a big deal when Macy's opened in Parkchester. It was the first of its kind department store, it, right? It was the first outlet store or non-Herald Square store. There is an advertisement in the book when Macy's Parkchester opened. They were awfully smart. They emphasized toys and beds and cribs for children, for a children's population. A couple of years ago, uh, Macy's closed some of its stores all over the country, but Parchester survived. And we literally, the Gurwaks lived on top of Macy's, hmm. and uh, we would go there not only for the air conditioning, but for this was a prestigious store uh, that people from all over the, uh, the Bronx would frequent. You know, I'm just thinking about this. That Macy's attracted people of all kinds. And Metropolitan Life Insurance Corporation didn't have any problems there. There were all these named stores like A.S. Beck and Learner Stores, etc. So Parkchester was often referred to as a city within a city. And it was like a suburban mall. But one advantage over suburbia, which continues to this day, and that is if you went down to the the subway line, which was elevated, and you looked at the Cross Bronx Expressway to this day, you can see these poor suckers crawling out to suburbia while you get on the subway, and for 10 cents, 15 cents, of course, much more today, you get downtown, 
in 25, 30 minutes, and uh, you go into the city. For a time, Parkchester was called Storkchester right. because so many babies were being born. Right. Uh, again, the, the, uh, the complex, the development, not the project, opened in 1940. Uh, even during wartime, there were children being born, but certainly after World War II, it became a neighborhood with you know, loads of loads of children, and the children were very much controlled by Parkchester authorities. Again, this is a story that's repeated. So many people tell the same story. I would say to them, how did you elude the Parkchester cops? <laughs> Parkchester was very unforgiving. Your kid trampled on a flower bed. You got into trouble. And if you enough violations, you got a rap sheet. In the 40s, late 40s, attempts were made to kick people out for having children who, who were misbehaving. And But later on, when this first generation grew up, uh, some young men and young women wanted apartments that their parents. So they were let, by the way, in terms of letting minorities in, legacies got in. In other words, if your family lived there, it was easier if you do get an apartment when you got married. So I interviewed a gentleman who said that I was a good boy, but I was an unindicted co-conspirator in an incident in our building. And when I got married, I wanted an apartment. And they turned me down until I brought my father-in-law in who was lieutenant in the police department, and that sealed the deal. But again, it's not a Jewish story. It's a Parkchester story all over the place. So they were blacklisting people. If you did something wrong as a kid, you wouldn't be able to get in as an adult. You couldn't get in as as an adult. So there was one fellow, sadly he passed away a few uh, months ago. He grew up in a very strict Jewish household, and his father, who I knew, never wanted his children to ever tell a lie. He was so strict that he used to get annoyed watching baseball games when the catcher would frame a fastball and move it into strikes. That's not a strike, it's a ball. So he told his children, never lie. So the son came home one day, a big smile on his face. He said, I got stopped by the Parkchester cop. And he said, what's your name? And he gave his first name. And what's your second name? And he gave his middle name. So they never found out what his last Mm. name was. His father was content that he hadn't lied. And... uh, Actually, he was one of the first men who moved out of Parkchester from the Orthodox community. He became a world-renowned economist, and he moved to Riverdale, where I live with my family to this day. And in the congregation that I belong to, there are eight families or more who grew up in Parkchester. And again, this is not a Jewish story. It's a chain migration. We talk about immigrant families. Uh, one person goes to the new land, although it's only six miles away or four miles away, and writes back and says, you know what? It's awfully good in Riverdale, air conditioning too. And we're richer, you know. Again, my dad was a fireman. My mom was a bookkeeper. My brother's a journalist, and I, I'm a college professor. So we're living in Riverdale, and we wanted to pray together in the same, in the same environment. So we were part of a, of a congregation that grew up in Riverdale, and when our old synagogue folded, which today is a mosque, one of our alumni bought a Torah scroll, which was rededicated in Riverdale. Hmm. It's awfully cool. You know, it's a nice connection. So we think very, uh, very strongly and fondly of being Jews in in Parkchester as we live within a 
uh, a multi-ethnic community. The fact that your old synagogue is now a mosque says that this neighborhood has changed a whole lot since you were there as a child. Well, it's changed a lot, but in some respects, it's remained the same. Two things about this, the synagogue that became a mosque. One of the things I'm most proud of as a, as a researcher is that when the synagogue closed, the last president of the synagogue, who now lives in Riverdale, I prevailed upon him to let me get all the records of the congregation. So the university, Yeshiva University where I teach, we rented a U-Haul van. I got three strong students. We went to Virginia Avenue and said, okay, guys, take everything, not knowing that 15 years later I'd write this book. So I have all these records, and one of the things that you see is to maintain a Orthodox synagogue, the key element is to have a minyan, a quorum of 10 men for services. And you see in the synagogue bulletins, I have no life, George. I read synagogue bulletins and church bulletins. <laughs> you see the rabbi saying, we need more men to come down. We're desperate to need to have more men, more and more. And finally, the rabbi leaves the congregation because he says, it's not a congregation if you don't maintain a minyan. But now it's a mosque. And I think my favorite story about my experience, which I only identify myself as a Parkchester boy at the end, is that I went back to the mosque, which was my synagogue, to interview the imam. He's Bangladeshi. And his English is highly accented, like our accent is a Bronx accent. And I'm having trouble understanding him. A young man comes over to me. He says, sir, can I help you? And he translates for me. And then he says the most wonderful thing. Would you like to see the other five mosques that ring Parkchester? So we make an appointment to come back. And um, we're driving around. And I say to him, you know, I lived around the corner from where you live today. And on a snowy, cold winter morning, the phone would ring in the apartment at 6.30. And my father would yell, okay, boys, I had a brother. Let's go. We went down, we went downstairs, went around the corner, and we made the minyan, the quorum. And after services, my father would get off the work. The old men would have a couple of belts of whiskey to warm up their bodies, and the rabbi would give me a prize, a reward, a shovel to shovel off the sidewalk. So the kid says to me, that's awfully interesting. I use the same shovel. Huh. Now, I don't think it's the same shovel. Okay. But it could be. Could be. But, and he has, to, he has a weekend job. He runs a religious youth group Saturday and Sunday. I had that same job wow. 40, 50 years ago. Yeah. And let me tell you about this kid. He graduated Bronx School of Science. He's going to NYU on a full ride uh, studying engineering and business. He could have been one of our congregants with one exception. He lives in an air-conditioned apartment. <laughs> yes, and I become he does. friendly with him. Yeah. And I, I should say, the fact that I'm a Jew for these Muslims... No big deal. On the contrary, when I went to these other five mosques, took my shoes off, put them back on, what did they want to know? What was life like in Parkchester when I grew up there? You really... So when you were a kid, it was Italian, Irish, and Jewish. What is it today primarily? It is African-American, African, Afro-Caribbean, Malaysian, Bangladeshi, Indian, Dominican. What would you say surprised you most in diving into this history of this place you called home for so many years? Uh, again, I think uh, the most important thing is how resolute segregation was in Parkchester and uh, how, you know, 
open the uh, the management was about doing what today we would say is reprehensible, although these experiences continue uh, all along the line. 1953, an attempt is made by Jewish communists living in Parchester, although there are relatively few Jewish communists, to desegregate Parchester. And uh, these people sublet an apartment to a black World War II veteran, that the Caters was their name. Uh, and that violated one of the 31 rules. When you signed your lease, there were 31 rules, including you can't climb over the fence, you can't ride on the street, etc. And Parkchester tried to evict them, and they were successful. And uh, all the records of... Uh, so the protesters then marched down to Madison Avenue, and they chained themselves to the desks, and they get arrested... The city marshals come there, and they get arrested. And how do I know all this? Because in the records, there is a reference to the Daily Worker, the communist newspaper, which tells the entire story. So what did I learn most is, again, I think for me, it's now becoming a very important teaching moment for me to talk about the issue, its ethnicity and race in a Bronx tale, in a Bronx neighborhood. So I think that that's so compelling to me. The book is Parkchester, A Bronx Tale of Race and Ethnicity. Jeffrey, thank you so much for coming in. My pleasure. Thank you very much. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Maddie Bristow. Our music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions. If you liked this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to Cityscape on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen to Cityscape on Spotify, Google Play, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at WFUV Cityscape to stay up to date between episodes. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>